There are times in the future that we look forward to like you just sang about, and that is a time where there's going to be a joy and there's going to be a thrill. For some of us, we, uh, when we were young, we thought that those times and thrill and excitement would come by doing different things. I remember as a youngster, I thought, man, I'm going to have real joy because I'm going to become a sports star, and I'm going to become this famous athlete, so I tried out for baseball. My first time out, trying out for a team, I hit the ball, knocked it really far, threw the bat even farther, hit the catcher right in the head, he got 18 stitches. That was the end of my joy when it came to playing baseball. Then I thought I'd become a musician. Musicians always look happy. They always have joy in their life. And so I thought I'd get some lessons. I've told you before, my dad traded four tires to the local guy who did music lessons. The only instrument he had available was the accordion. After the second lesson, the guy drove back to my dad's station, walked up to my dad and said, I'm giving you the tires back. It's hopeless. (laughs) That didn't last. That joy just didn't last. I thought when I was 16, I'm going to have great joy. I'm going to get my license. And when I get my license, I am just going to have this perpetual happiness. And I got my car, my $50 Rambler. I bought it from the local undertaker. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. And so I took it out the first night I got my license. I took it out, and I was just so proud, so happy inside that I left the car out of gear. It went down the driveway where I was parked at somebody's house and crashed into the telephone pole. It could still drive, but the joy was just kind of, you know, it didn't last. When I was a high school senior, I thought, I'm going to have the most beautiful hair. (laughs) It didn't last. It didn't stay. There are things that we look forward to or we bank on that's going to give us real joy. And a lot of it doesn't happen. But Jesus in John chapter 13, the last night when he was dealing with his disciples... He talks about real joy. And as he's teaching this phenomenal passage, phenomenal passage that he teaches that every believer needs to get a grip of. Pick up the story as you read, follow along with me as I read. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he rises from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then comes he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do you know not now, but you shall know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, you have no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed needs not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. You are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and taken their garments and sat down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Tremendous text. Tremendous passage. Filled full with the greatness of Jesus. Where Jesus is portrayed right away in the first verse, having great knowledge. Verse 3, he knows that his time is at hand. The passage talks about his great love, that he loved them to the uttermost. He's loved them to the fullest ability. The passage talks about his great power, that all things are in, given into his hands. But the passage is filled with great teaching. Phenomenal teaching. Teaching that every single one of us needs to remember every single day. Where he says to them, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Hey, take that phrase. Dissect it a little bit. Break it down. Think it through. What he's saying, he is saying, since you now know these things, he says, you're going to have real joy inner peace, happiness that can't be found in sports or in music or in cars or in hair length. This, I'm going to give you a real joy that is going to last. And it's going to be yours. And it's available. And he says, for all of you. It's a plural ver verb that's, that he uses. He says that if you, all of you know, happy are you all if all of you do them. He's talking in this text that such joy is possible for every single believer. Now, if you're here this morning, you're listening to this broadcast of it, and you are not born again, this message really isn't for you until you get born again. Because he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to the followers. For you to become a disciple and a follower, you must be born again. You must ask Jesus Christ to be your personal Lord and Savior. You must recognize that you are a sinner, that you are hell-bound, you don't deserve to go into heaven, but Jesus has died and paid for your sins so you can have complete forgiveness. And when he resurrected, he proved that he had the power to take away those sins, take away the punishment, take away the hell that you are headed for, and give you eternal life. And he is sitting, ascended to heaven at the Father's right hand, pleading for you to call upon him. And whosoever shall call upon him, doesn't say baptism, doesn't say join a church, whosoever shall call upon him in repentance, asking Christ for forgiveness and believing that he can give you eternal life, whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. You need to be born again. Now those of you who have done that, you have entered into this relationship where you're believers and you're disciples, supposed to be following Christ. Well, you who are disciples following Christ, you can have lasting joy, lasting peace. It's possible for every single one of you, but it requires each of you to do something. Not only something, but he says, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them, the plural. In this passage, God is saying there are several things you need to do to have real joy. You need to do them regularly. You need to keep on doing them over and over. What are they? What is Jesus telling his disciples the night before he dies that, that they can have as a formula? What can they do so that they can have lasting joy? Number one is this. Number one, you need to allow the Lord to do as he pleases with you. You need to be controlled by Christ. In this text where we already read, Jesus is with the disciples. And as they eat and they're doing their thing, part of the custom was for somebody to wash feet. 
usually when they first enter the room, but nobody has done that. Nobody has taken up that responsibility and played host to the others. So after they've gone through part of the meal, all of a sudden Jesus gets up. And Jesus starts washing feet. Peter pipes up. And Peter's response, we already read it, but Peter makes this comment. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet? He's wondering, he's questioning, but I want you to catch something. He called him what? Lord, you're my master. You're the one who's leading me. You're the one who, and, and you're going to wash my feet? Yeah, I, I wonder. Maybe you have an answer. Why was Peter all of a sudden hesitant about Jesus washing his feet? What do you think? It was a servant's job? And Jesus is the Lord? Do you think there's any other reason why? I agree with that. Any others? Could Peter be embarrassed? Embarrassed by the fact that maybe he should be washing Jesus' feet. Is, is Peter all of a sudden saying, you know, this, this is unbecoming of the master, unbecoming of the Lord. And Peter all of a sudden says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus says, you don't understand. You don't understand what I'm doing. You don't fully comprehend it. But I'm going to insist that I do it. And, and he goes on, and the, the conversation is kind of befuddling. He says, he says, what I do you know not, but you shall know hereafter. And then Peter, who just called Jesus Lord, says what? You shall never wash my feet. You're my Lord, you're my master, but I'm putting limits on you. I'm not going to let you do what you want to do. I, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense to me. And so therefore, I'm limiting you. I don't fully agree with this. And therefore, you cannot do what you want to do with my life. And Jesus responds. He says, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part. The word is the idea of you have no fellowship. You have no closeness to me. And he makes it very clear. You're jeopardizing, Peter. You're jeopardizing our fellowship right here. And it's amazing when you think this through. What Jesus is saying in verse 17, I have taught you something. I have taught you, you need to let me have control. Let me do what I want with you. And if you don't, you won't have lasting joy because you won't have fellowship with me. You won't have closeness with me. And so the, the reality is, is this. We need to be yielded to Christ or we don't have closeness with him. If we don't have close fellowship with him, we're not going to have joy. He mentions that in the next chapters over. He talks about, I teach you these things that your joy may be full. And so Jesus very clearly is saying to these individuals, I've got to have control of your life. Same thing he's telling us. Years ago, somebody in our church told me about a situation that they got themselves into. That what they did is they decided that they were going to buy one of their parents' home. 
it was a house that was, you know, the one had grown up, one of the, one of the couple had grown up in it, so they were going to buy mom and dad's house. Mom and dad were going to get out of this multi-story home. They were going to get on one level. And everything was great. They came to the day that, you know, they signed the papers. Mom and dad moved out down to a place where it was one story. Everything was great until after the couple moved in with their kids. And as they moved in, all of a sudden, mom and dad came back for a visit, even that same day, that next day after they were moving. And the kids, the adult kids commented, we're going to change the color of this room. And the parents said, no, you're not. And they said, well, yeah, we, we're going to paint the room. No, we like this color. We painted it. It went time and again. That whenever they said they wanted to change something, we're not going to have a garden in the backyard You've got to have a garden. We planted one for years and years. You've got to still have a garden in that spot. It came to the point when they said they were going to cut down some of the shrubs. No, you can't do that. We planted those shrubs. Those are our shrubs. And then they committed the ultimate. They were going to renovate the kitchen. You know, they watched, they watched the programs. They got the ideas. They know what to do. And they said the mom and dad came and they were angry and started yelling at them. You can't renovate this kitchen. We just did it 25 years ago. What would you say? What would you say? Does mom and dad have a right to tell their adult kids what to do with that house? No, why not? It's not theirs. They sold it then why are some of you telling Christ what to do with your life? He bought you. You sold yourself to Him. And yet you refuse to get baptized. And yet you refuse to forgive others. And yet you refuse to pray regularly. And yet you refuse to build others up. You'd rather rip them down with your mouth. You, you refuse to visit the widows. You refuse to obey government. You refuse to be thankful. You refuse to put off the old man and put on the new. You insist that it's okay to keep on cussing and cursing and telling dirty stories. You insist that it's okay to look at porn. You think it's okay that you fight in your home and you as a couple have conflicts and disagreements. You disobey your parents. What's the difference between you and those parents who sold the house and tell their kids what to do with it. If you're going to have real joy, you have got to let Christ control your life. How you talk, how you walk, how you work, what you look at, how you come and worship, when you come and worship, how you read your Bible, how you train your kids. Number two, you need to do this. You need to admit the need for regular, daily cleansing, spiritual cleansing. You need to confess to Christ on a regular basis. Now, we know that what Jesus is teaching in this passage is as he's doing the foot washing that he is going to teach them a spiritual lesson. Not just the idea of, okay, actually washing feet. There's a spiritual lesson here. Follow what happens. Peter finally says, okay, Lord, if I want fellowship with you, if, it's gonna have, if, if what I allow you to wash my feet, that determines how close we are, then here's what I want you to do. I want you not only to wash my feet, but I want you to bathe me all over. 
You know, if a little bit is good, then a whole lot is better. Yes, no? Doesn't it work that way? I mean, I remember going out to Indiana to a Bible college and preaching one, one chapel service. I was having a cough, a tickle in my throat, so I thought, okay, I'll take some cough syrup. Well, if a little is good, man, I, I, I've never got woozy preaching before. Yeah. My brother has a pool in his, in his Florida home. And he decided to put some stuff in there that would help cleanse the pool. And they were going to be gone for a couple of weeks, so if a little is good. And by the time they got back, they opened up the doors and the bubbles were all over the room. That they couldn't even see the pool. A little is good, then a whole lot is better. Not always. And so Jesus is saying to this impulsive Peter, who is responding and saying, Oh, hey, if I want to get close to you, I want you not only to wash my feet, but give me a bath all over. Jesus goes on to explain what he, a, a tremendous spiritual lesson. Watch what he says in this text. He says at the end of verse 10, he says, You are clean, but not all. What's he mean by that? He is talking about spiritual cleansing. He is saying, You are cleansed of sin, but not all of you. How do I know that? For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, you are not all clean. He's not talking about Judas stinking. You know, he's got body odor worse than anybody else. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about Judas is not cleansed of sin. He's a traitor. He's not born again. And so you are, some of you are clean, but not all of you. And then he goes on and he teaches this whole idea about cleansing where he makes that comment. He says, he that is washed needs not save, wash his feet, but is clean every whit. What's it all mean? Let's do the setting. In ancient times, they didn't have running water in the homes. Great surprise. You all knew that. They frequently had communal places where they would bathe. The communal bathhouse that wasn't vulgar or, or uh, a filthy place. It was a place where it was the centralized bathing quarters. And so what you would do is you could go down to the central bathhouse. You could get your daily, weekly, monthly, yearly bath. And then you would walk home. When you got back home, as you walked the dusty streets, you don't need to be bathed all over. You just had your bath. But what might have to be rinsed off? Your feet. And so he's saying in this text, the language reads this way, okay? That idea that a saved person doesn't need, who's been saved all over, cleansed all over, he doesn't have to get saved all over again, but on a regular daily basis as he's walking through life, he needs to have his feet rinsed. You need to go to the Lord and say, hey, Lord, You know, I'm born again, I'm saved, I'm one of your children, but I lost my temper. Please forgive me for that. Lord, I'm your child, and I I love you with my whole heart, but I got really, 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 really frustrated and angry. And I, man, I, 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 I shouldn't have done that to the other driver. Lord, forgive me because I wasn't honest on my taxes. I need to be cleansed or wash my feet, get rinsed off. This is exactly what the Bible encourages. He says in 1 John, if we who are believers confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we've got to confess. 
We've got to go to the Lord and say, please forgive me. One of the games that we played when we were raising our kids was we would play hide-and-go-seek in the house. Turn off the lights, give the kids flashlights, and run around. And we would play and hide, and, and you know, it worked most of the time. But then as the oldest child got to be a teenager, he figured out how to find the younger children. He would just walk in the room and say, Ben, where are you? And Ben, being about four years old, he couldn't keep his mouth shut. (laughs) Here I am! Here I am! Play hide-and-go-seek with little kids? All you have to say, I can't find you. Where are you? And all of a sudden, boop, 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 boop. Buzz, 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 buzz. So we play this with the grandkids now. And there's still several of them are too young to stay hidden. But as we get older, we become more refined in hide-and-go-seek. We stay hidden longer. Or in my case, the grandkids get bored, they leave, they never tell me. And I stay behind the rocker for an hour. But as we get older, we all of a sudden become more refined on keeping the hiding place, keeping secrets. The same thing happens in our spiritual life. When we're first saved, we're very sensitive. Man, we want to make sure we confess, we confess. But as we get older, all of a sudden, we may not be confessing as much. We may be hesitant. We might, we might think that that argument with our spouse wasn't so bad after all. We might think, I don't have to admit I was wrong. It's embarrassing to go and tell somebody I was gossiping about him. And we become more secret. I have been keeping a secret for the last few weeks. One that I didn't want any of you to know about. Well, a couple of you know about it. I had taken our family away to Kalahari just for an overnight thing. And we were up there and we were enjoying the water park. We had a wonderful time. But while we were there having a wonderful time, I injured my shoulder to the point that when I injured my shoulder, for 36 hours I couldn't move it at all. I had to brush my teeth by going like this. <laughs> it was really hard getting dressed. My doctor you know, said I did some things to the ligaments, but even to this point it's really hard to lift with this arm right at this point. Now, I would like to tell you that I injured it by rescuing somebody from a pool. (laughs) I would like to tell you that I did something heroic, that some child was lost and I helped that child find their parents and had to push off other people. I want to come up with something heroic. Because what really happened is rather embarrassing. I rode the most dangerous ride in that park. It's the little kids area. (laughs) There's those orange and green tubes. If you ever go there, let me warn you, don't run in those things. They're for little kids. They slide down, one on each side, and they race down. Adults. It's dangerous. It's serious. So I'm racing my grand, one of my grandsons, and he says, go. And I went, and he went. I got stuck. <laughs> I'm on the corner in this thing, and I'm not moving. 
the water is piling up. I'm thinking I'm going to be shot out, you know, eventually. And so it's not moving, and I'm thinking, other kids are going to come. Their feet are going to come. I'm boom, boom, boom. I got to get out of this tube. Please help me. And so I pushed and pushed and ripped something. My son says he's watching, and all of a sudden, out of this tube, he's wondering, Riker came out. I thought Dad went down with him. All of a sudden, these feet come slowly out of the tube. And he's going, what in the world? That looks like Dad's shorts. That's my dad. I'm so embarrassed. (laughs) I got up. I was, oh, it hurt. I was so embarrassed. The doctor said, what did you do? I got stuck in a tube. (laughs) No, you, you ripped some ligaments. No, I got stuck in a tube. There are certain things in our life that we don't want to admit. They are embarrassing. It's stupid, I know. You know it's, but what about when it comes to such things as losing your temper? What do you do when it comes to becoming jealous against somebody? How, how do you respond when, it's, when you use God's name in vain? What do you do when you take something from work and it's embarrassing and it's shameful? Do you confess it? Do you even go to God and say, God, I'm so sorry I haven't even read your word in a week? It is sin to know to do good and doeth it not. That's sin. I know that I haven't prayed to you, but you're so embarrassed you don't even confess it to him. By the way, he knows already. Are you so embarrassed that you say, hey, what what I'm going to do is I I, I don't want to admit to my parents I lied to them. God knows. Your parents probably do too. You need to confess. You need to admit. Even though it's, it's embarrassing. Even though you say it sounds dumb. Why did I do what I did? Why do I feel that way towards that person? Why am I so envious at that individual? Why am I so angry at my spouse? Why did I let this argument get so carried away and I'd done it before? You need to confess. You need to ask God for forgiveness if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us. And in this passage, these things, plural, have I taught you to have joy. You need to let Christ control your life. You need to confess so he can cleanse your life. Then what you need to do, there's a third thought here, that what you need to do, number three, is this. You need to assume the role of a servant. You need to assume the role of a servant. You need to be as compassionate as Christ was. Think it through with me again. Who normally washes feet? You already mentioned, Mike, you said the servant, the lowliest one in the house. What if you don't have servants? Then it's the host. Then it's the host that would wash the feet. And so normally... That would be the party would do it. If you invited somebody over, you're going to wash their feet. Or if you have servants, you're going to let the lowliest servant do the task. Well, there was no servants at this meal. There wasn't a family that owned this house where it was hosted. Rather, Jesus had already told some of the disciples to go take, get this room rented out and you guys prepare the meal. You guys make the preparation. Do you remember which two disciples had that assignment? It is given in Luke 22. 
It is Peter and John. So who should have started washing feet? Peter, John. And all of a sudden Peter realizes, oops, oops, I made a huge guffaw. But there was a reason why Peter didn't do it. Do any of you remember? Do you remember why none of the disciples, and by the way, just so you understand the culture, you wash the feet when they first show up. So it's, it's everybody missed it. None of the disciples did it. Why not? We read in that same account in Luke, we read this. There was strife amongst them. They were arguing over who's the greatest. And there's no way that I'm going to wash Judas's feet no way. I'm not going to wash Matthew's feet. Matthew was a tax collector. I'm not going to wash any of my cousin's feet. They couldn't fish as good as I. I'm not going to wash my brother's feet. No way. He was always mom and dad's favorite. I'm not washing the feet. The typical conflicts that happen amongst people like this, that there's no way I'm going to give in to somebody else. Because in our house, we're arguing over who's going to get their way. Who's the best? And so nobody washed feet. So Jesus gets down and does the task of the lowliest of lowliest servants. Which, by the way, this is his great example of humility. That's even brought out by the writer that talks about it. And Jesus makes the comment that he says, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. The servant is not greater than his Lord. Neither is he sent greater. He made that comment. He says, you call me master and Lord, and that's great. But if I have washed your feet, verse 14, you ought to wash one another's feet. You ought to serve. You ought to be as compassionate. You ought to do what I have done. You ought to, you ought to assume the second, the second spot. You ought to go beyond your family and close friends and meet the needs of others. You ought to put others ahead of yourself. You ought to be one who, like Christ, would minister in small ways, but in significant ways, to show others that you would serve. You ought to be willing to do lowly jobs. You ought to be an individual who says, I will do for others without even having to be asked like Jesus, without even expecting a reward or a reciprocation. I will... I will I will extend myself and do something that's really difficult. I will invite people into my home for fellowship. I will serve them by doing this. Instead of waiting this afternoon, this evening, for others to invite you. You ought to be of the individuals that's not like this little boy. The story of a little boy and his sister on the rocking horse. And there wasn't room for him. And the little boy made the comment, he says, it's too crowded. If one of us would get off, I would have more room to ride. Many Christians act this way. If people would just visit me and call me more often, I'd be happier. But you don't call anybody else. Christians will say this, if other people would watch my kids in the nursery, teach my kids in Sunday school, I'd be much happier. People say this, if others would volunteer to organize a fellowship, to invite me to their home, to do something for my group. Boy, I, I'd like that church more if they would serve me that way. Uh, if others would provide more Bible studies, classes, where I could go and learn more 
and learn more instead of teaching. I'd be happier. Some would say this, if others would volunteer to work at camp or VBS for my kids, we'll have a good time. I'd like that church a whole lot better. If others would volunteer to do more for me and my family, I'd be happier. We all expect. We expect others here to cater to us, to minister to us, to meet our needs, to do that which would make me feel better. But what are you doing to serve others? Where are you assuming the lowliest task? Where are you acting like Christ? James Bonham Butler was a lieutenant at the Battle of the, of the Alamo. He was there, and he was one of those heroic men who gave his life in that war against the Mexicans. And years later, at the museum that they set up, and I don't think it's this, this is there anymore, from what I understand, but for years they had a picture up to honor Bonham for his, James Bonham Butler for his sacrifice. But underneath the picture that they had like this, they had this caption. This is not an actual picture of James Bonham Butler. However, they said he looked a lot like his uncle. So this is a portrait of his uncle to give his likeness. Because they look so much alike. Do you look like Christ? Do you serve your spouse like Christ would serve? Do you serve other teens like Christ would serve? Do you serve the church family like Christ would serve? Do you serve people who are looking for a church home? Do you serve them the way Christ would serve them? You see, the passage is real simple. There is a formula, a formula for real joy and real peace. And this formula is for all of us. My wife was visiting with one of the grandkids in Michigan sometime in the last few months, and she was playing Uno with one of the granddaughters. And when they were playing the game, one of them laid down something that doesn't, it's not supposed to work that way in Uno. And so my wife said, you can't do that. That's against the rules. Not in Michigan. (laughs) I don't think Michigan has different rules. Yes, we do. That's the same way some of you are acting. There are different rules for me than anybody else. No. The same rules apply. Allow the Lord to do what he pleases. Admit the need for daily cleansing. Assume the role of a servant. And you will have inner lasting joy. Father, I pray that you would help us. Help us to be individuals that just don't hear, but we do. Help us to take seriously the words of Jesus, the example of Christ in this text. Help us to be individuals who will really get serious about yielding as a Christian. Help us to get really, really, really sincere and disciplined about coming before you and confessing and making sure we're right with you. Help us to be individuals who would get, get off this idea that the disciples had, that we need to be served, but rather that we would have your spirit, your attitude,
of serving others. Help us to grow. Help us to change. Help us to honor Jesus and follow him better.